Welcome to the Philip Levy Show, discussing health, wealth, and life. Here we go. Charleston is a small town with three main bridges connecting the neighboring towns to the historic peninsula. Just west and over the Ashley River are dual one-way bridges of the same name, the Ashley River Bridge. The Ashley starts as a wandering salt marsh and funnels towards the harbor. While gradually increasing in size, it never gets much wider than a football field. Just on the other side of the river is a town called West Ashley. If you're enrolled at the College of Charleston and you live off of campus with a car, then this is where you'll most likely be. Our story begins here. 2003, around 19 years of age, is when we got a little troop together and rented a house just off of campus. Not too close to raising the eyebrows after hours, and just far enough to keep current on the action. In a very short time, we had matriculated from living at home to the dormitory life of a freshman in college. Now we were all-knowing sophomores that had banded together to find our very first place to live. For the first time, we were without oversight. Public safety officers and those pesky residential authorities, RAs, were a whole township away. What now could stop us from doing as we pleased? We were now the masters of our own journey, captains at the helm, and the wind was strong. We were all good kids. We all had good heads on our shoulders, and outside of the usual gallivanting and tomfoolery, we all had good hearts and the best intentions. One habit we got into was having people over after a night on the town. You may have heard of this practice. Keep in mind that campus was only two miles away, so we weren't exactly long-hauling anything here. Everything was in close proximity. When the sun went down and the night crawlers came out seeking thrills, this could, and did, easily end up an after-hours occasion at someone's house. One weekend, one of my best friends came into town. He was going up to school in Asheville, North Carolina, and also being from Memphis, we shared memories going back to middle school. If you remember your first car, then you can likely recall how special it was to you. Whether it was something nice or just a bucket of metal, it was unique to you, and at that period in your life, it meant something very special. Ever since high school, my friend, we'll call him Adam, he had driven a faded red Bronco 2. It had been a full red at one time, but really it had matured into a shade of grayish ochre, which made it a very unique color. So this is where we find ourselves. We're 19 years old. We're fresh back from the Charleston night scene with a house of assorted partygoers. There are several cars parked in the lawn along with the Bronco 2. Somewhere just past the time where Saturday turns into Sunday, we ran out of beer. This is not uncommon as the urge to see where the night will take us usually matches the time the alcohol runs out. But we are fresh-faced teens and the answer to whether or not we should continue on into the night is always the same one. Yes. Not a half mile up the road and around a bend in the road lay the local gas station that had all the beer we would need to continue our midnight adventure. After pooling our funds, we had allocated enough for the group of us to execute our intention. Ever the gentleman, Adam, with the Bronco, volunteered to drive. Since I kept the cash, it was only natural that I go too. That's when Adam asked me if I knew how to drive a stick shift. Now this was a complicated question to answer. Growing up, I drove an automatic. I did have the ability to drive a stick shift, but the actual action of shifting was what I had trouble with. That dance between gas, brake, and clutch was always something I was tripping over. Every time I had tried, which was just a handful, I would miss the clutch and stall out. 
to the mounting frustration of whoever was nice enough to be teaching me, this was something that I decided was an unnecessary life skill and quickly put away. However, this was not the first instance where out in the country, socially lubricated, the opportunity to try had been brought up and I was relaxed enough to feel the machine under me and shift perfectly fine. After fumbling through this explanation to my good friend, he insisted that I try my hand at driving his truck. A challenge! Adam tossed me the keys and I climbed into the cab of the truck. He rode shotgun and I fired up the sun-bleached red machine. Under his guidance, I carefully shifted from neutral to first gear and pulled slowly out of the yard and rolled out into the single-lane street. Any good machine needs the proper lubrication, and both mine and the truck were just about right. Author's note, we were 19. Never at any time during this story will I claim that we were intelligent. The machine crawled smooth as we eased up out of first gear and, under the watchful eye of my friend, I traded gas for clutch. Nice and easy, we climbed into second gear. As we picked up just a little bit of momentum and speed and rolling, almost gliding, we met the curve on our street and wound around the bend, straightened up, and it was one stoplight, and we were there. The lights of the filling station and its little market marked the horizon as we gently approached the only stoplight this midnight quest held. I gently shifted the old girl back down into first gear and rolled slowly and safely to a stop, bringing her to neutral. We sat idle beneath the traffic signal that blazed her beacon through the night. Waiting patiently, we chattered about things that friends who've known each other for half their lives do, nothing important and perfectly content in any silence that came about. The light turned green. I eased her forward through the intersection and into the parking lot of the gas station. Our prize awaited. You could smell that gas and almost taste the beer, practically ours already. The act of gassing a truck and buying beer is something that has been done since the dawn of time. Fire, the wheel, then beer. That's it. Nothing in between. That's how long this ritual has been happening, so it may go without saying that it was no big deal. The documentation I presented at this particular establishment was pre-verified and passed at this location on a weekly schedule, so our bases were covered. Armed with this knowledge, plus our ridiculously close proximity to the house, what could go wrong? While I popped into the shop and retrieved the necessaries, Adam gassed the beast. We reconvened the pump, the whole operation taking no longer than five minutes. I'll drive back, he said. Fine with me, man. I tossed him the keys. Content in our knowledge that we had the necessaries to keep our guests entertained well into the night, we stow our bounty in the back, then strap in for the short, uneventful ride back to the house. The gas station was the fourth point on an otherwise three-way intersection. We sat at the light, engine idling, waiting for the light to change. The parking lot emptied out into the intersection of the Savannah Highway. Running east to west, the highway was empty as far as the eye could see. Street lights and nighttime. A good sign. Through the glass of the windshield and just a tick beyond was our destination. Home. All that was to be done was to gently exchange the brake for the clutch and just add a bit of gas. We were already pointed in the right direction. It was a deliberately cautious crawl across the intersection and we're back on the back road and practically back to the house. The whole trip was maybe 500 yards. The light turned green. Adam performed the brake, clutch, gas combo that was new to me, but that he had performed thousands of times. He expertly motored across the four-lane highway and back onto the residential two lanes. 
So far, so good. Adam and I are the type of friends that are perfectly comfortable sitting in silence. That's right where we were when he said, I want to show you third gear on this thing. Admittedly, I was and am still not an expert in automotive matters. However, I did grow up in a household steeped in physics, so I consider myself well-versed in the laws of speed, inertia, and centrifugal force. This may go without saying, but Ford released the original Bronco in 1966 as the original all-purpose vehicle. There were four other renditions that spanned through 1996 when they were then discontinued for a while. Somewhere in the late 80s to early 90s, the Bronco 2 was released. It had a slightly smaller wheelbase and sat up just a bit higher than its cousins, but still packed plenty of that iconic Ford horsepower. Plus, when you put it on the small back roads of South Carolina, it feels plenty big enough. This particular summer night on the unstriped residential street with no sidewalks, the burnt ochre Bronco 2 took up the space around us just fine. In the environment of a back road in the middle of the night, with the windows down and trees overhanging, you felt every bit of speed the machine was putting out. We gradually picked up the pace. What gear are we in now? I asked, assuming we were in first since we just began the return trip, but also not sure as I knew very little about manually shifting transmissions. We just hit second gear. I switched from forearms resting on the lowered window to a hand at the top of the frame on the roof, and we rode on. We continued to accelerate. Okay, this is cool, but remember that curve we took getting up here, okay? The curve was yard marker 400 on our 500-yard return trip, give or take. Okay, you ready for third? He said. No, the curve, I replied. Here we go, he said. The curve, I replied. On the way back from the store, 97.6% of that journey was an easy straight shot. It had just one turn to take. It was that last little bit of the road. It's that last little bit before the finish line that can bite you, and this one was about to bite really fucking hard. Had the road turned at slightly gentler an angle, things would have worked out. I mean, we were doing fine until, well, until we weren't doing fine. That last bit of road had a significant leftward bank. It was unmarked and came at you quickly if you didn't know to look for it. This is where our world turned upside down. It's a strange thing, the feeling of sitting normally, then being lifted upward into weightlessness, all while you're inside of a steel box. Add speed and inertia to this and the sensation is very disorienting. While you're at it, go ahead and make it nighttime, and now you've really got yourself the ingredients for one very confusing scene. You might think that going airborne in a truck is like flying in an airplane. It is not. Airplanes are very different. They do what they're supposed to do. They point down a runway, they give you all sorts of warnings and precautions before doing exactly what they're designed to do. Ford Broncos do not give warning or precaution. They are not designed to fly, much less roll. But on this night, on this particular curve, we found a way to launch ourselves into a corkscrew roll and make that happen. The truck hit third gear just as we entered the curve, accelerating and banking left. I'm in the passenger seat on the right side. From my perspective, things are fine, if just a little bit faster than comfortable, until the street shifts and tilts. It continues to tilt. It slides a full 90 degrees to the point that the street itself has turned and is sitting completely perpendicular to where it should normally be. This all happens very fast and it is very disorienting. 
As the truck veered into the leftward turn and continued to pick up speed, the angle of the curve increased. In an attempt to correct this and stay on the road, there were two options. Either the gas pedal needed some breathing room or the wheel had to be turned harder to stay on the road. On this night, it was the second option that was chosen. <sighs> Can't win them all. Speeding further into the curve, the wheels on the driver's side lifted up off of the pavement. At the same time, the driver's side was lifted up off the ground and into the air. If one goes up, then the other must go down, right? This action sent the passenger window hurtling toward the ground at breakneck speed. I give credit to instinct alone as I yanked my arm inside from out of the window. In one movement, I reached to the shoulder strap of my seatbelt, gripped tight, and pulled down on it as hard as I could. Then, as the unmistakable sound of tires on pavement went from four to two, then none, we arrived at the silent point, the eye of the storm, limbo, the fraction of a second where everything slows down just before all hell breaks loose. Silence. As any animal in the wild that is unaware its existence is about to come crashing to a halt, the silence was followed up with a metallic death rattle of this collection of steel, aluminum, wood, and rubber, and plastic that formed this beast went tumbling across the pavement, scraping, catching, and grinding upon the road, rolling over and over. Then, silence again. The remains of the vehicle wound up stopping sideways against a telephone pole. My side of the truck was lowest to the ground, and as we spiraled, I had shut my eyes tight and balled myself up against my seatbelt. Opening my eyes, I did a self-check. In the movies, you see people who are in shock and don't know they're hurt, right? But those are the movies. Did that play out in real life, too? It couldn't hurt to check again, since I could be in shock and not feeling anything yet. I checked over once again and found everything to be where it should be, all limbs and digits present and accounted for. There was dust everywhere. We recovered from head to toe with a fine white powder that gave us both this spectral effect. I learned later that there was a bag of dry cement in the back, and when the truck flipped, it exploded everywhere. The air was now filled with this dust, making the scene even more disorienting. I didn't hear anything from my friend. I wasn't sure what the dust in the car was yet, so keeping my eyes closed, I reached over to see if I could feel Adam's location. I coughed to clear my lungs, and, Adam! 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 He grumbled in reply, Yeah, man, I'm here. What the fuck happened? Are you okay? I don't know. I think so. I think I have something in my eye. Check yourself again to be sure and let's get out of here. I'm good. I'm good. We began the task of untangling ourselves from the wreckage of the machine. During the ordeal, all of the windows had shattered, so we had options to get out. Unclipping our seatbelts, we crawled through the hole where the windshield was half hanging on, squeezing out through the roof and the dash. The truck had rolled something like one and a half times and had come to rest with its undercarriage against a telephone pole. If you've ever fallen off a galloping horse or out of a tall tree and hit a few branches on the way down, then you've got some idea of how we were feeling. This could have been much, much worse, and we were soaking in just how lucky we were to be standing here counting all of our fingers and toes. Crawling out of the hole, we clambered upright. With hands on knees, it was apparent that Adam took it harder than me as he leaned back against his beat-up truck. His pain was both physical and sentimental, so he had it worse. 
We later discovered that Adam had a small piece of glass in his eye, which caused no long-term damage to his vision. However, it would warrant a trip to the hospital that night. His truck was another story. I stood up and held my hands up to the street lights. With hands outstretched, fingers wide, I did another self-check. All ten. Hands swept over my torso. No fluids coming out. Looking down at my legs and feet, everything accounted for. We were both very disoriented. Having just been thrown around in a steel cage and slammed against a pole, things took a moment to fully reboot. Are you kidding me? I said. I hadn't realized it until I regained my bearings, but the pole that stopped us was located directly across the street and right in front of our house. We're talking ten paces to the driveway. The irony was not lost on me of how close we had come to getting away with something we should definitely not have been doing in the first place. Then the reality hit us. We had this scene to deal with. It's around one in the morning where two children covered in concrete dust with glass everywhere. There's canned contraband stored in the back of a Bronco that's beat all to hell and is now resting with its bottom side against a telephone pole and halfway in the middle of the street. Up to this point in our lives, beer cans and pot stems was the extent of our rap sheet, so most of the trouble we had gotten into was easy enough to hide, deny, or walk away from. This was a different level altogether. How the hell would we clean this up? How would we get out of this? There had to be a way. As inner monologues go, mine went something like this. All we really need to do is get the tires back underneath. Its bottom side is against the pole, so that's two flips. One to the roof, then two to the tires. I continue. We just start rocking the truck back and forth and build up momentum, right? This way, we flip the truck, and then we can roll it into our driveway. Then we have it towed later. I mean, we're right across the street from where we were trying to go in the first place. How hard could this be? Yes, that could work. Surviving an encounter with death and potential dismemberment can fill one with delusions of grandeur. Adam, still down for the count, rested on the side of the road with glass in his eye while I tested my strength against the 2,000-pound truck wedged against the pressure-treated telephone pole. I'm 19. I can think my way out of anything, and nothing at all can stop me. I'm basically a genius, so this was bound to work. My delusions of grandeur were doused with the icy bucket of reality. This truck was going nowhere. Hopes now deflated, we began to accept the reality of the situation. This would soon be a scene filled with tow trucks and police. It was time to cut our losses and clean up what we could. Lights were now coming on in windows, and a few front doors could be heard squeaking open as the neighbors were now responding to the sounds of what had happened. Adam was down for the count, so I needed to do what I could to make the scene the least amount of incriminating as possible. Please award a medal to whoever makes the boxes they sell beer in. They're definitely stronger than whatever they keep dry cement in because the beer was still in great condition. I gathered up whatever contraband I could find and hustled across the street toward the house. Covered from head to toe in chalky white concrete dust that was trailing and falling off behind me, I walked across through our yard looking something like a cross between a marble statue come to life and a mummy. Music could be heard coming from inside. As I reached the door and turned the handle, I pushed it inward and opened it wide. It quickly became evident that no one inside had heard any of the commotion. This was clear because the party atmosphere was still going strong. If you've ever seen anyone with flour on their face or any kind of face paint, then you know that they look nothing like themselves without the mess on their face. The confusion set in as people eventually turned and saw me standing there unrecognizable in my current state. 
The paradox was that this spectral, cakey stranger who was very odd in appearance in any other situation might be very alarming, but the amount of beer I was holding took the level of alarm back down to just invited confusion. Unsure of how best to proceed in my own house, I said the only thing I could think of to say. The police will be here soon. Everyone should probably leave. This was the phrase you didn't mess with in college. Most people stopped what they were doing and started gathering their things. A few people went out into the yard to see what happened and generally wished us luck and then departed. This was for the best as we had some serious things to sort. My other roommates now came to aid and see how we might best lessen the blow of what we had done. While the scene was clear of anything that would lead to unwanted questions, we still had a flipped over truck right in the front yard and a friend with glass in his eye. The situation was not looking good. Chris and Paul, two other great friends of mine, helped me to think through the problem and it became evident that we would not be able to move the truck on our own. Adam, with a minor injury to his eye, would need to go to the hospital and had no way to get back to North Carolina just a few hours from now. It's 267 miles from Charleston, South Carolina to Asheville, North Carolina. Because of the state of the scene, an ambulance was also dispatched and took Adam to the hospital. They removed the glass from his eye, then discharged him. Later that morning, with the sun now up, Chris, the best of the four of us and on zero sleep, picked Adam up from the hospital and drove him the entire way to Asheville, then turned around and drove the 267 miles back to Charleston. The truck was totaled. She was towed, she sat in the junkyard several miles from our house, and we could actually see her driving to class as the years rolled by in Charleston. Serious disaster had been averted. We were beyond lucky to walk away from that scene with all of our limbs. Adam got back north and eventually got another truck. This was one of the scariest events I have ever been involved in, and I have learned from and never will forget it. If there is a lesson to be learned from this, here it is. Advice is dispensed from every street corner, but if a good friend offers advice based on experience, it may be best to listen closely. I hope you have enjoyed this audio presentation of Bronco 2, an excerpt from Shit Not To Do, Tales From My Younger Years. Thank you for listening. Cookie cutter programs are for the sheep in the herd. Rise above and see if what we're cooking up is right for your needs. Here's what others are saying. The result is that I have given up a bunch of bad habits. I think he also understands everyone is different. His passion extends so far beyond just the session that you have together. So I become healthier, I sleep better, I just feel better. Head over to philiplevy.com and see if you're a good fit for one of our custom tailored programs. P-H-I-L-I-P-L-E-V-I dot com.